All right, thank you, Candy, for that reading, and thank you, Peter, for the prayers. Um, good morning, church. It's good to be with you today. I'm excited about uh, this series, and as we unpack Revelation. Um, we'll be journeying from now all the way to the beginning of December um, through this series, and it is a book that is typically really hard to understand. And so if you missed last week, do go back and look at it, because I spent that whole sermon with how do we read it? How do we interpret it? And so that will be foundational for us as we go. Briefly, let me recap a little bit of what I said last week. First, in understanding Revelation, we need to know the big story of the Bible, from creation to the fall to restoration and redemption. We see this arc of God working in the world, always inviting us to bring flourishing to it, to the whole creation. Um, last week, somebody said, hey, you said just to flourishing of humanity. And so I want to correct that. It's to all of creation that God has placed us in where to bring flourishing. And it ends, we'll get to the end of this in Revelation 21.5. You can see the verse here. I am making all things new. Uh, and some people um, mistranslate this verse in, from new heavens and new earth. They think it's a replacement heaven and earth. It's a renewed heaven and earth. Heaven will come down to earth. So we understand the arc of scripture, and that helps us to understand what Revelation is saying. Next, what did it mean to the original audience? How did they understand it? And we'll spend time each week looking at their perspective. And finally, there are three genres, three types of writing in Revelation. Apocalyptic. We don't see a lot of apocalyptic writing in scripture. Daniel was one of the main places that we see it, as well as Revelation. It's filled with symbolism, and it's not the typical thing we're reading when we read Scripture. It's also prophetic. It's a call to faithfulness. It's, it's a call to live as God intends us to live. And then finally, it's a letter. It would have made sense to the original audience. Now, one of the questions I got last week is, you know, wouldn't it be nice if the, um, it was just clearer to understand. And yes, that would be nice. We get some people, you know, we think about, um, we could do a whole class on how the Bible came together. And I spoke a little bit on this last week. But we have, you know, these writings through time that were gathered by scribes, and sometimes they were harmonized, and, and other stories were brought together to give us the book that we have today. And the early church in the first 300 years had to decide what to include and what not to include, um, because we don't have sort of those original letters that Paul wrote, right, or the gospel as Mark wrote it. And some people outside the Christian faith will take that as a critique uh, of the faith, but I actually take it as a blessing of the Christian faith because we see God working with the people, meeting them where they're at, with whatever technology they have or don't have, with whatever scientific understanding of the world. God doesn't correct their understanding that the earth is at the center of the universe in order to speak his truth to them. He meets them in that place. And what's amazing about that is because he does the same today. He meets us where we are at with whatever we understand or don't understand. God could have sent Jesus back after the time of the printing press so we could have exact copies of everything that was originally said, but he chose not to. And that, for me, is how he works with us today. He gives us narratives and stories and poetry 
It's to forge a relationship of faithfulness and trust, of bringing new life, and that's who Jesus is to us. And so um, it's been fun to come at this text afresh, and I hope you are enjoying the journey as well. I want to propose a lamb-centered way of viewing Revelation. So the lamb is at the center. Jesus is at the center. He is the point of this book. And how did Jesus live his life? We will see that portrayed in Revelation. Jesus doesn't come into battle to destroy, to wipe out. He comes into battle already with blood, but not the blood of his enemies, his own blood from his sacrifice. That's how he brings redemption and restoration to the world of giving of himself, and he invites us into the same. Revelation was written for the first century. It was written by a first century author with first century devices, full of imagery, full of metaphor, full of symbolism, and it's a call to faithfulness and it's a call to worship. All right. I want to give you a heads up on this. We won't get to, to much of the colors yet, but if you are reading ahead, and I would encourage you to be reading Revelation, you can follow our reading plan. You'll start to get to some of these colors this week. And so if you want to take a snapshot of that, um, that might help you. We'll get to just white, really, today. White represents purity and God's presence and victory. Red is blood and violence. Black and green are death and purple is royalty, but especially to corrupted powers. We do get more to the numbers in Revelation starting today, and we'll see more of these numbers as we journey through the book. Threes, sevens, tens, and twelves are complete numbers, perfection or victory. Six you know, could be a number like 13 or 4, a bad luck number. The infamous uh, 666 will come to later in Scripture. It's one less than complete, so it's not a great number. Three and a half is for a short time. 144,000, I had a question last week, um, what does this mean? Um, now, if you're going to read um, Scripture, Revelation, literally, then you're, that's it. That's the extent of the kingdom is 144,000. You would be missing the meaning of that number. You have 12, this perfect number, also representing the 12 tribes. 12 times 12 times 1,000. This 1,000 is a stand-in for a magnitude, a multitude. So you have this perfect multitude of people. Not an exact number, but the right amount um, that God sees as fit. All right. We'll see this pattern of sevens throughout Revelation. And at the end of each pattern, we see God's victory. So keep that in mind as we journey through the text. Finally, before we jump into the text, um, from Scott McKnight, and I keep a list of some uh, books, references, resources up here if you want to look at those after the service. He says this, Revelation is first and foremost a revelation about Jesus. And this is really the entire first chapter that we'll unpack today. Let's pray. God, I thank you for who you are. I thank you that you meet us, not just in this text, not just to the original recipients of this letter, but you meet us today as we read. You meet us today in the 21st century with all of what we're walking through. And so we thank you that you are a faithful God. May your spirit be at work as we comprehend, understand, and apply your word to us. Amen. 
So Revelation 1, we start and we hit some of these verses last week. First, it's a revelation. It's an apocalypse. It's an unveiling, this revelation word in Greek, of who Jesus is. What must soon take place, John says, and we see over seven times in Revelation this idea of what must soon take place, or it must happen now. And Understanding that is important for us because we maybe most likely when we think of time, we think of chronology, we think of calendar, we think of watches. And in Greek, there's two words for time. One is chronos, where we get chronology, and one is kairos, this idea of the appointed time, the right time, God's time. And so when we read in Revelation, it's not a call to go to the calendar and try to figure out what is going to take place and when it is going to take place. It's more an invitation to think about God's timing in this world. It's a sense of living with an urgency because we do not know the time. We see in Acts the author of Acts saying it this way, Luke says, he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. We hear from scripture that we're not to be guessing at the time. We're not trying to figure it out. Jesus in Matthew 24 and 25 tells several stories about a king that is returning. And if you're familiar with those stories, the idea was that nobody ever knew when he was coming back. His coming back was always a surprise. But they were supposed to be waiting in anticipation, living in anticipation, as though Christ could come back at any moment. So when we hear it must soon take place, we don't go to our calendars. We're not to look forward. We're actually looking backward on who God is and what he has done. Revelation um, then the last verse, one, it's a prophecy. We touched on that last week. And also the last words in red, who hear it and take it to heart, what is written in it because the time is near. Those who are blessed. So the people who are receiving it know how to take it to heart. They know how to understand it. And we'll talk a bit about how we can understand it today. Chapter one goes on. Again, this is a letter. John is writing to the seven churches. And he talks about seven spirits. And so already this is, this is one of the more confusing things we'll get to as we just start Revelation. There'll be much more confusing things. But seven, again, that perfect number. Some manuscripts say sevenfold spirit. So it, the idea is not that there are seven spirits. It's actually one spirit, the Holy Spirit. The complete spirit is what John is telling us. And then John begins to ascribe these names to Jesus as he sees this vision, as he hears and sees, he begins to put this down. And the first thing he says is this is Jesus. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the appointed one. And this Jesus is a faithful witness. He is the firstborn of the dead. He is rulers of the kings of earth. As we talked last week, one of the main um, driving um, narratives in Revelation is Babylon, the Roman Empire, how to be a faithful Christian in the midst of the Roman Empire. 
because they were to be worshiping Caesar. Caesar was Lord. So to say Jesus is Lord was a very subversive thing to say, a very politically threatening thing to say. And John is saying, you know what? You might have your earthly rulers, but there is a ruler to rule above those rulers, and that ruler is Jesus himself. He goes on to describe what this Jesus does. He loves us. He has freed us from our sins by his blood. He has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. His kingdom is coming. His kingdom is here. And we're a part of bringing that kingdom, of bringing heaven to earth, praying for that, seeing that happen. John is calling his people to this new way of living, to this new way of doing life. And then he goes on in verse 7 with this image. Look, he is coming with the clouds. And this is an image from Daniel 7. This is also an image from Zechariah 12. And then he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. We were going through this passage last night in Life Group, and the Living Translation says he is the A to the Z, right? Um, Which doesn't quite sound as powerful as Alpha and Omega. But that's the idea. He's the beginning of the alphabet. He's the end of the alphabet. He is the beginning of Revelation, and we'll see at the end of Revelation, again, this alpha and omega bookends, if you will, is who Jesus is to this. And he is who is and who was and who is to come. He is the Almighty. As we were singing um, you know, the songs as we started today, that Jesus Messiah and Jesus at the center. These are so perfect for what John wants us to grasp about who Jesus is. He is the center. He's the center of our faith, of our lives, of our church. And how do we live with him at the center in a world where he is not the center? This is the point of the book that John wants his readers to understand and what God wants us to wrestle with today. So John sees these images, and it brings them back to the Old Testament, Daniel 7, to Zechariah, to other images we'll get to later. So John sees it, and he goes back. We're not to see it and go forward. Okay, what's next? You know, it's, it's not a future predictive thing. It's a remembering who God is and what he has done. Jesus here is the point of the book. It is a book about him. It's a revealing of who he is. Revelation 1.9, John says, now he's writing to them, not from a vision, but from his own words. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus. Most scholars think this is John the Beloved, John who had been exiled on Patmos, uh, John who wrote the Gospel of John. And he's writing to churches and he's saying, it's going to be hard. I am suffering alongside of you. I have to endure alongside of you. Um, This is not usually the marketing messages we put on our website. Come to church and suffer alongside together, right? He's being real with what they're facing. He's not saying everything is okay right now, but he is saying Jesus will be with you in it, and ultimately Jesus will have the victory He's a co-sufferer with those he's writing to. They're taking it as an encouragement, as a comfort, and also 
as a challenge. Revelation 10.1, on the Lord's Day, I was in the Spirit. And, and many scholars think this Lord's Day here is reference to Sunday, which would have been a transition because for Jews, Sabbath, which was Saturday, would have been the holy day. We begin to see a transition here as the church begins to branch out from its Jewish faith. And then he writes on this scroll to the seven churches. These are seven real churches during that time. And this is where they were. Um, they were on a postal route. And so getting the letter to these churches will not be difficult. But what's important about their location is that section of Asia Minor was an area where there was a lot of emperor worship. There were altars to the emperor. There was the cult of worshiping the emperor. Caesar was Lord. They saw the Caesars as godlike, god-ish, if you will, figures. So they offered food for sacrifice. This becomes a challenge for the early Christians, whether or not to eat this food or not. The whole economy was shaped around Rome and the Roman Empire and the worship of the emperor. So these churches are right in the center of that. How will they deal with it? How will they manage? Will they remain faithful or will they be drawn away to the empire? This is what John is writing about. He also tells us that there are lampstands and these lampstands are symbols for the church. We can see the menorah, the Jewish lampstand here um, as an example of that. John carries on in verse 12. He says, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow. We get that white reference there that we talked about earlier, this purity. And his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. And his voice was like that of the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. And coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all of its brilliance. John's words here, as he is seeing this image, bring him back to the Old Testament, specifically in Daniel. Daniel 7 um, he has references to Isaiah 11, references to Ezekiel. When John is seeing this, it reminds him of these passages in the Old Testament. It helps him to put into words. Daniel 10, these eyes of fire and glowing feet. We see this image of a statue, this, this image um, that... Uh, We'll get to that in just a minute. This image of this, this beast, eventually we'll see it in fuller detail later, but this is an image in Daniel of Babylon, the empire. And we see this carrying off in Revelation of how do we live in the empire and still be faithful. We'll come to these series of sevens, um, these various judgments and at the end of these judgments, we always see the victory of Jesus. These judgments are um, really about the same thing. One is encapsulated in the other. And so we get this victory, this victory, this victory, as we see these challenges unfold before us.
Let's go to verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and now look, I am alive forever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. So we get these other images of who Jesus is. He is the first and the last. He is the living one, right? He was dead and now is alive. He is the firstborn from among the dead, the first to be resurrected. When he come back, we will all be resurrected. And he holds the keys of death and Hades in his hands. This is the power that God brings through Jesus the life group material has additional material each week. It's a great time to, to jump into a life group. This chart um, unpacks some of what I was just saying. We won't spend time with it today. Um, but if you want the life group materials, definitely join a life group or uh, reach out to me, and I can send you the link to get to these. N.T. Wright says it this way. He says, when we are looking at Jesus, John is saying we are looking straight through him, at the Father himself. John is lifting up the Christology, the who Jesus is, to the highest level that it can be. He wants no mistake about Jesus being God. He wants no mistake about life is through Jesus. That's why he spends this whole first chapter on describing who this Jesus was and how powerful Jesus is. John closes Revelation with 19 and 20. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. Sometimes John will tell us the symbol and what they mean. The seven stars are of the angels or the messengers, um, some of the texts say, of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So John starts us with Jesus. This is a revelation about Jesus. The entire book is about Jesus. He wants us to make sure we know who Jesus is and what Jesus does. From here, John goes on in, verse, in chapters 2 and 3 to talk to the seven different churches that we just looked at. Read chapters 2 and 3 this week. Next Sunday, we'll start with chapter 4. The message to the churches is very similar to what we'll unpack in the whole book. It's a call to faithfulness. Some of the churches are more faithful than others. It's a call to resist the empire. It's a call to not be lukewarm. Um, John lifts up these descriptors of Jesus in the first chapter, lifts them up in his messages to the churches themselves. And so do read those um, two chapters this week. Um, that are pretty straightforward. And then we'll unpack next week um, Revelation 4, which is a little less straightforward as we talk about the throne. John wants us to know in this book that Christ's victory does not come through conquest, does not come through violence. And we'll meet this victor as the Lamb the lamb that was slain, the lamb that gave life so that we could have life. We achieve victory through the cross, 
And Revelation is calling the people to live a Jesus-soaked life, a Jesus way of doing life, not striking down enemies, but serving Jesus, serving others, walking with Jesus in this cruciform way of living, to not be pulled away into the empire. For them, it was imperialism. Maybe for us, it's capitalism. Maybe that's the strongest force in our life, and we've oriented our whole life around it, from our education to getting the best job to earning the most money. Maybe consumerism, maybe materialism are things that have so soaked our lives that it's so difficult for us to actually really follow Jesus. Because all these other influences have really directed and led our lives instead of Jesus himself. This isn't just a message to the first century church. That's what they were walking through. But we walk through our own challenges, our own issues, our own struggles to keep Jesus at the center. And this is what John wants to speak to us today. How do we remain faithful? How do we continue to follow Jesus with whatever struggles there are? And he reminds them that they don't go through it alone. The lamb is there with them. He is present. He is for them. He is an example They will be victorious in this world, not by yielding a sword, but by following Jesus and staying faithful to him. A final resource I want to give you, and this is in the life group study materials, is a video from the Bible Project. You can scan that. It'll take you to the link, or you can just Google Bible Project Revelation. It's an excellent video. they have two videos on Revelation, and they give you a wonderful overview. As we go through this, there is so much content about Revelation and so many images that are difficult to understand. Um, I would encourage you to, to actually watch this video probably each week as we get to another part of the letter. But I wanted you to have access to that. But I want to close with what we see in this first chapter. How can we summarize this vision to the people that John is writing to. One, it's a sign of security. The all-powerful one will protect the church. He is amongst the lampstands. He has not walked away from the lampstands. He has not thrown the lampstands away. But he is amongst the lampstands. He is with them, and he is with us. It's also an incredible sign of hope. The one who was killed is now alive and living forever. He is the firstborn among the dead. And it's a promise of what he will do for us as well. They are facing persecution. We will face challenges in our faith as well. But just as Jesus was victorious, they will be victorious. And finally, it's a call to discipleship. It's a call to obedience to who Jesus is. It's a call to be faithful. It's a call to journey with Jesus, to journey together as the church, even if and especially if the times are difficult. Jesus is all these things. He has the power to do all these things. 
And he invites us into relationship. He invites us into life. He invites us into a new way of being to experience that life. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you are the faithful one, that you, in fact, were faithful then and you are faithful now. You have given yourself so that we might have life. And you meet us right here. You met the first century church. In the Mediterranean world that this was written to, you met these seven churches, and you meet the 21st century church. You meet our church right here in Hong Kong to be present amongst us, and we thank you for that. We thank you that you, in fact, are Lord and Savior. May your Holy Spirit continue to work in and through us, we pray in your name. Amen.